Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm so excited about my guest today. But first, did you know that information can travel through your brain at over 260 miles per an hour, and that your brain is the fattest organ in your body with about 60% fat? Today's guest is a specialist and knows quite a bit about the brain and the body. Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa and a staff physician at the Iowa City Veterans Affairs Hospital, where she teaches medical students and resident physicians, sees patients with traumatic brain injury and therapeutic lifestyle clinics with complex chronic health problems that often include multiple autoimmune disorders and conducts clinical trials. Dr. Terry, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm always glad to chat with you, Katie. Awesome. And I did not include your story in the bio because I want you to tell it yourself to our listeners, but it's so incredible. And I've talked with you in person and was just absolutely blown away, not only by how vibrant and healthy you are right now, but of hearing your story and how you got here. So can you walk us through your journey? You know, and I'm actually profoundly grateful uh, that things turned out this way because I ended up learning so much along the way. In 2000, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, the basis of a history 13 years earlier of dim vision in my left eye, a new problem of weakness in my left leg. Uh, We had uh, a big workup, which included an MRI of my brain and spinal cord, which showed lesions in the spinal cord, and then a spinal tap uh, that was abnormal. uh, And I was diagnosed with relapsing, remitting, multiple sclerosis. Now, I knew at that time, within 10 years of diagnosis, when a third of people will need will have problems walking, needing a cane, walker, or wheelchair, and one half will be unable to work due to severe uh, and profound fatigue. At that time, my uh, children were uh, ages five and eight, and I was the main breadwinner for the family. Uh, and so I decided to treat my disease as aggressively as I could, I sought out the best MS center in the Midwest that also did clinical trials, which was the Cleveland Clinic. And I uh, uh, saw their best people, took the newest drugs, uh, and still within three years, my disease had transitioned to secondary progressive MS. And in that phase, Katie, there's no more spontaneous improvements. There's a steady decline. Um, I, I took the recommended chemotherapy. I got the tilt recline wheelchair. When it became available, I took the biologic drug, uh, Tysabri, uh, but continued to decline. Uh, and when, you know, when I hit the wheelchair, I started, you know, I, I realized that conventional medicine was not likely to stop this slide into a bedridden and demented life. Uh, and so I started reading uh, the science myself, hoping to s- slow things down. I took some vitamins and supplements that seemed to be somewhat helpful. Uh, and, and I'll backtrack for a moment here. Uh, in 2002, while I was still walking around, my neurology docs at the Cleveland Clinic told me about Lauren Cordain and the paleo diet. And so I, I got his book, read all of his papers, and after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I reintroduced meat, uh, took away all grain, all legumes, all dairy. But I continued to decline. Um, and then the following year, you know, I converted to secondary progressive, got the wheelchair, took more chemo, took Tizabri. Uh, began reading, adding some vitamins and supplements. In the summer of 2007, I um, was so weak I could not sit up in a regular chair anymore. I had to be in the recliner um, 
uh, reclined all the way back so my knees were higher than my nose uh, or in bed. I could walk very short distances using two walking sticks. And that's uh, the summer I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I took their course on neuroprotection, which deepened my understanding. And now I had a, a longer list, about 20 vitamins and supplements that I was taking. Uh, and then I had the insight I should figure out where these were in the food supply and get these 20 nutrients from food. So it took more research. And I uh, began this new way of eating, which is still guided by paleo principles, but uh, structured now to get more nutrition for my brain. And when I did that, Katie, that's when the magic began. Uh, within three months, my fatigue was gone. My brain fog was gone. Uh, at six months, I'm able to walk throughout the hospital without even a cane. At nine months, I, I was able to bike around the block. Uh, for the first time in five years, uh, and that was a huge day. Uh, I'm crying. My family's crying. Um, and at 12 months, I go with my family on a 20-mile uh, bicycle tour and bike the whole 20 miles. Uh, and so this really transforms me as a person, as a physician, and as a scientist. Did I see the world of disease and health now in a very different way? And how I practice medicine is focused on diet and lifestyle. And that's where I've now focused my research is on diet and lifestyle interventions. That is so incredible. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps every time I hear your, your whole journey and just how much you overcame and how diet really did play such a role. Um, and I mm -hmm. love that you have the position that you have where you are able to start introducing this into clinical research. And, and so I'm curious, do you think that there is, um, is there any good in the conventional treatments right now for MS and degenerative disease, are there good aspects of that? Or do you think, um, well, from, and I talk about this a lot in my book, the conventional approach is that, uh, uh, when you have an autoimmune disease, the only thing that, uh, a conventional doc will talk to you about is what drug to turn off, uh, what part of your immune system. So it can't attack yourself very well. And that uh, could be helpful in a uh, critical crisis. Uh, but unfortunately, they're, they're nearly always, uh, they forget to talk about diet and lifestyle choices. Uh, and there's uh, lots of evidence, you know, thousands of papers that talk about the health consequences of ramping up the vegetables, getting rid of the sugar and the white flour, um, adding meditation, adding exercise, um, and the studies for disease specifics on uh, MS uh, are, are just beginning. And I'm one of the few researchers that is really looking at a uh, holistic diet and lifestyle approach for MS. And we have stunning results. Breathtaking, really. Yeah, it's amazing. It wouldn't make perfect sense if you think about it because you're not... Uh, seeing these problems occur because of a deficiency of immune suppressing drugs. There's obviously Correct. an underlying issue, and so your your focus is supporting the body in doing what it's supposed to naturally do anyway, which is so brilliant. Can you talk about your Walls protocol? Um, I'll definitely sure. link to your book, but give us some specifics of what that includes and what a day might look like on the Walls protocol. Okay, so uh, in the Walls protocol, we're trying to address all the nutritional deficiencies uh, that occur. And the lower the risk of food sensitivity and abnormal immune response to food. So we remove the three foods that in the U.S. 
have the highest probability of causing abnormal immune response. And so that's um, gluten, which is a protein in wheat, rye, barley, and many, many ancient grains. Casein, which is a protein in dairy foods that is uh, similar enough in the amino acid sequence to gluten, that 80% of those who have problems with gluten also have problems with casein. Uh, and then the third most common is the uh, protein in egg whites. So we have people remove those three foods. Then I uh, stress that we're going to ramp up the vegetables and have what I call sufficient amount of, amounts of protein. So for uh, that would be six to 12 ounces for uh, according to size and gender. Uh, and the vegetables are divided between green leafy vegetables, rich vegetables in the cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family, and the deeply colored things like carrots, beets, berries. In addition, uh, we teach people a uh, daily meditative practice uh, and give them a couple options for which they can choose. And we would design a personalized exercise program based on uh, their physical limitations and needs. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of the first month is the tough part where we provide a lot of calling, coaching, and support. Uh, we talk about uh, food addiction and how most Americans, and I, I certainly am, addicted to sugar um, and white flour, and that causes a rapid spike uh, in our blood glucose, and it stimulates our pleasure centers in the brain. And so that's why so many of our comfort foods have a lot of white flour and sugar in them. Uh, people can have a little uh, detox reaction, have more headache uh, pain that first week. Usually that's gone by the second week. Um, if it stays longer, we want people to see their personal doc and see is there anything else going on. Um, and in my clinics when we do this, and I see people monthly, um, generally within one month they're reporting we do symptoms, fatigue, uh, more energy, more uh, mental clarity, uh, better moods. Uh, in our clinical trials, we see them at three months, and that's when we first do the measurements. And again, what we see is reduced symptoms, uh, reduced fatigue, improved uh, moods, improved mental clarity. Um, the changes in gaits take longer because that uh, we have to grow muscle the old-fashioned way, which is through exercise and strength training. And uh, that will take more time the more severely disabled you are. That makes sense. So in your clinical research, obviously your, um, your background of this came from an MS perspective, but are you using this on any other conditions and, and who might it also be helpful for? Sure. So uh, we have a grant proposal to uh, use this for myalgia. Um, and I'm working with rheumatoid arthritis group to write a proposal for that population. In my therapeutic lifestyle clinic, we will see anyone with a neurological problem or medical problem who is open to using only diet and lifestyle to treat uh, from our clinic. And there we see people with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, lupus, arthritis, psoriasis, chronic pain, diabetes, obesity, bipolar, traumatic brain injury. Um, uh, depression, uh, PTSD. And we've seen all of those conditions have reductions in symptoms, 
uh, improvements uh, in energy and function. And typically, we're working with their primary care doc to steadily reduce medications because uh, you know their blood pressures are falling, blood sugars are normalizing. We have to get them off uh, a lot of their meds as they recover. Uh, and we, we've also have been able, uh, as people have fully recovered from their inflammatory bowel disease or RA, uh, successfully wean them away from their immune suppression and have them continue to stay uh, in very good health. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. What about supplements? I know a lot of my listeners have an autoimmune disease of some kind, and a lot of people are recently finding out that they have things like an MTHFR mutation yeah. and that they're not, their levels of maybe glutathione are low or B12 are low. Are there supplements that are helpful in this? Well, um, you know, my approach for uh, supplements is that uh, as soon as we supplements, we run the risk of getting uh, the ratio incorrect for, uh, if you're supplementing, say, for zinc, um, you can inadvertently create copper deficiency. Um, so when you're supplementing vitamins and minerals, it's important to monitor levels so you don't overshoot. When we're supplementing based on uh, genetic or nutritional testing uh, and now have a very specific uh, need for addressing such as THFR, uh, then you know, targeted supplements can be profoundly helpful. Uh, and that's part of uh, what I think could be the benefits of this uh, precision medicine. Uh, rather than looking at this to design uh, the perfect drug regimen, you could use this to design the perfect vitamin and supplement regimen and the perfect food choices to make sure all the enzymes in your body can work as effectively as possible. That makes perfect sense. Um, so let's talk about a somewhat controversial topic in today's world, which is genetically modified foods. And obviously some of the more common ones wouldn't be included on your protocol anyway. The corn, wheat, and soybeans yeah. would be out. But um, is there a difference in our body's ability to absorb nutrients from genetically modified foods? Um, is organic yeah. a priority or is conventional produce okay? Um, so uh, let me uh, – we'll break this question down in several phases. One, is conventional produce okay? I acknowledge that everyone's economic reality is very different. And for some people, buying vegetables, conventional vegetables, uh, will be challenging enough. And if that's your economic reality, yes, you could eat conventional vegetables, greens and berries, uh, and you'll still reap benefits. If you need to prioritize, you could use the Environmental Working Group which is ewg.org, and they have some wonderful guides to prioritize what uh, foods to get organically uh, and what foods um, conventionally have the lowest uh, residue of pesticides. Uh, if you use conventional foods, the detox and the recovery will be more slow than if you're able to use uh, organic foods. Um, so it, it's helpful if you can, but if you can't, uh, you'll still have many, many health benefits from increasing the vegetable intake. Now, the question of genetically modified organisms, I think that there are two parts to that question. Uh, one is that most of these genetically modified organisms have in them uh, modifications that make them tolerant to a variety of uh, uh, pesticides and herbicides. And so the, those plants have 
more frequent and heavier applications of these pesticides, in particular Roundup. And while Roundup was presumed to be safe, uh, there's some increasing evidence that uh, Roundup, uh, which is a very potent antibiotic, is sterilizing the soil, decreasing the fertility of the soil, and is beginning to change the microbiome of the livestock that, that eat grown grain and the humans that eat these conventionally uh, grown products that have a lot of Roundup on them. In addition, even some non-genetically modified organisms are, are now having uh, Roundup placed on them uh, two to three days before harvest, uh, and then uh, the plant is harvested. Uh, and I'm talking about wheat. So wheat has a lot more Roundup, which increases the risk to having an altered microbiome, increases the risk for um, so for that reason, I would avoid GMOs because I don't want more pesticide exposure. The second problem with GMOs uh, is really the unknown. When we insert these new genes, we had assumed that it was going to be safe because we read the genes uh, in a linear fashion. Um, there's increasing evidence that genes actually read more in a network spider web fashion. And so the gene A may affect three or four more other genes that in turn can have some subtle changes in the shape of proteins uh, with that organism. And that means when we eat that organism, we're encountering proteins that have altered slightly and uh, are more likely in the genetically susceptible person to cause an uh, immune response. This um, early tentative data, it's uh, data from England. Um, we don't have uh, strong data on this other than, other than to say the autoimmunity rates are much higher, the gut rates are certainly much higher uh, since the introduction of genetically modified foods. Therefore, in my clinical practices, when people have chronic health problems, talk about uh, the benefits of going organic and avoiding GMO, the benefits of growing your own food, uh, and encourage people to head down that path. But, you know, I work in the VA, and I'm certainly mindful that that, that economic choice is not an option for some of our folks. And then we help them do the best they can with their conventional foods. Yeah, that makes perfect sense and a great explanation. What about people who maybe have microbiome-related issues or leaky gut um, who are having trouble absorbing nutrients from their food? Will this type of diet yeah. still be effective for them, and can it actually help with that? Um, you know, it's very common uh, for us to I'm so glad you're asking this, that there's more recognition that the 100 trillion bacteria and yeast that live in our bowels are a very important part of determining health uh, status for that person. If you've had antibiotics, you've had lots of conventional grain, uh, you're more likely to have killed off too many good bacteria bacteria to thrive. So uh, our approach to uh, healing the leaky gut, I start out of bone broth uh, and uh, I use some coconut milk with the bone broth. Uh, 
Uh, you can also take some glycine with that um, and uh, glutamine. Uh, but if you use bone broth, both those compounds raw and have several cups every Cook all the vegetables, don't have anything uh, out raw until uh, you feel like the gut is doing well. Uh, we also talk about soluble fiber, which is now called resistant starch. Uh, and if you're eating nine cups of vegetables, for most people that will be plenty of fiber. Uh, some will need to take some additional um, fiber, such as uh, chia seed pudding or flaxseed pudding, uh, to be sure that they have a couple of stools every day. Perfect. And um, to change the subject a little bit, something that I wanted mm -hmm. to touch on because there's a personal interest for me right now. We talked in person last year and we briefly talked about cholesterol and its role in health. And, you know, oh, we often yeah. hear in society that high cholesterol is really bad and that the lower the better with cholesterol. And even someone in my own family was recently boasting that she got her cholesterol down to, I think, below 90 with dietary changes. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. So what is the real story on cholesterol? Can you shed some light on that for us? <clears throat> well, um, I'll trace the history of this. So before World War II, uh, there was a lot of feeling that the way to treat obesity was a low-carb diet. Uh, and it was sort of a high-protein, high-fat, low-carb diet. Uh, then World War II uh, came around, uh, and, and with all of the hardships uh, across the world that that caused, and the rationing uh, of many food supplies. The epidemiologist, Alan Keyes, after World War II, observed that uh, there was a sharp reduction in the rates of heart attack and heart disease in World War II. And he linked that this was due to the reduced availability of cholesterol uh, from butter and uh, eggs, which were rationed. Uh, as a result, uh, public policy got changed. The NIH started funding research on uh, the cholesterol as the driving uh, theory for heart disease. And total cholesterol was sort of associated with heart disease, but not precisely. Uh, then they decided that it was better if you did the HDL cholesterol and the LDL cholesterol, which was a little more predictive. But still, uh, half of the people who have heart disease <clears throat> had uh, perfectly fine uh, cholesterol values. So they kept tinkering, and now uh, the focus is it's on whether you have low-density cholesterol particles and just how many that you have that determine your risk. Um, there's also more recognition that uh, the cholesterol is, uh, is involved in the uh, immune process and that when the cholesterol-carrying molecules get damaged by a viral particle, a bacterial particle, a uh, particle from a heavy metal like lead or mercury, or it gets sugared as in glycated because you have such a high carb diet, that those changes make the cholesterol particle very low, um, uh, dense, and very inflammatory. Uh, and so the, the current research is more focused on what is it that's damaging our cholesterol particles and that turns out to be chronic low-level infections, uh, too much sugar in the diet, um, and too much exposure to heavy metals. Um, and there's uh, other basic research that's going on identifying that atherosclerosis is really an autoimmune disease. 
uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, most clinicians are unaware of that basic research. In addition, uh, there's some very interesting uh, epidemiology in these cholesterol studies. Uh, I'd say nearly everyone uh, has demonstrated that there's a much higher rate, uh, statistically significant increase in homicide, suicide, depression, uh, cognitive decline, and new onset of diabetes. Uh, and we find that time and time again. Now, in some epidemiologic studies, I've looked at cholesterol values and your risk for dying of infection, cancer, uh, or developing Alzheimer's. And if they divide the cholesterol values into what I call the quintile, so uh, each 20 percentile of the group, the highest level of cholesterol group have uh, five times less risk of death, cancer, infection, or dementia. Uh, and our neurologist coming around uh, realizing that cholesterol, 25% of all your cholesterol is in your brain. Uh, it's a critical part of myelin, uh, the insulation on the wiring, critical part of our cell membranes, that uh, we may have demonized the wrong thing, that we probably should have demonized sugar, uh, and also throw in the artificial sweeteners, uh, and concentrate on having fats that are healthy and appropriate that we can metabolize, um, which includes saturated fats, includes cholesterol, does not include trans fats. And these liquid refined vegetable oils are a very new product. Um, I, I certainly would not use those either. I'd rather people use things like olive oil, flax oil, walnut oil, hemp seed oil, cold. And if you're going to cook, use saturated fats because they're heat stable. Yeah, I've definitely talked about the problem with vegetable oils before, but I had not heard about um, the research on atherosclerosis being potentially autoimmune, which would make a lot of sense and be fascinating. Um, I hope that we'll see more about that. And just to make sure and reiterate that I heard you correctly, you said that higher cholesterol was correlated with lower risk of death and disease. Is that? Uh, in a couple of these studies, they said higher cholesterol, lower risk of death, disease, dementia, uh, infection, and cancers. That's amazing. Uh, fascinating. Uh, and so oh, we don't really know uh, what, what to do about cholesterol. We certainly know what to do about sugar, which is the, the science is very clear, uh, less sugar, better health uh, on all fronts. Uh, the science has now become gray on what to do about cholesterol. The uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs can lower cholesterol, can lower your risk of heart attack, increase your risk of diabetes, increase your risk of dementia. Uh, they don't appear to change the overall uh, uh, all-cause death mortality, however. So you can shift your, your uh, cause of death from heart disease to neurological and psychiatric. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a great trade-off to me. Um, I would much rather people you know, do this <clears throat> radical thing known as eat more vegetables, meditate, and exercise. Yeah, definitely. I'm a huge fan of the vegetables. And I think a lot of us as moms, we definitely understand the importance of getting our kids to eat vegetables. Um, but we're seeing all these statistics about how our children's generation is going to face such high rates of cancer and heart attack and diabetes and all these other and autoimmune problems. So yes. are there things that we can do um, even while we're pregnant or while we have our children in our homes and they're oh, young? Absolutely. Like what would be wonderful things so, that we can do to support them? Um uh, we'll talk about uh, trying to get pregnant. 
uh, it's certainly follow the Wallace Protocol, detox, uh, be absolutely gluten-free. Uh, that will likely improve fertility considerably and help normalize uh, your hormones. And I do talk about that more in the book. While you're pregnant, again, eat as clean as you can be. Be sure you have plenty of fat, particularly DHA, uh, so you have good uh, development of the brain. Hopefully you're going to uh, have that child <clears throat> excuse me, through uh, a vaginal birth so the child gets the uh, correct bacteria in the microbiome. Breastfeed so the child gets more support for developing the correct bacteria in the microbiome. Um, if you were not able to uh, have C-section, certainly breastfeed, and you might think about adding some probiotics uh, to the nipple while you're breastfeeding uh, to help repopulate uh, the gut uh, for the child. Uh, introduce lots of vegetables. Know that uh, it can take uh, 20 introductions for a new taste to be accepted, so keep trying. Uh, a rule that my parents had was that uh, when you ate it was expected you're always going to eat everything that was served. And if you said, yuck, you got a second serving. Uh, and so we learned that all food was good. Some food was just more extraordinarily delicious than others. Um, and people can decide how they want to handle that. But certainly introducing foods, expecting that everyone's going to at least try it, um, I think is an important concept. I would also talk nonstop about uh, the downsides of sugar, the critical role of um, having vegetables um, because we, we need to get our kids to eat more than one one serving of uh, fruits and vegetables a day. Uh, it, it, it will often be much more successful if you take out the uh, grains and the white flour. So what's available at home uh, are uh, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, uh, quality meats, uh, making it fun. Uh, you know, kids really like uh, kale chips. That's a lot more fun than uh, plain kale. Um, my daughter has a, a favorite saying, which I've come to love. Bacon will fix any vegetable. So if you fry up a little bit of bacon, leave the fat in the pan, add your vegetables for two minutes. If it feels just a little bit bitter, add some balsamic vinegar. Uh, the fat and the, and the bit of uh, vinegar will usually neutralize uh, any of that bitterness and make uh, vegetables, even cooked greens, much tastier uh, for the uh, youngster. I like that saying. And I also like the, the yuck equaling a second serving because we don't let our children complain about food, but I like that if they do, they get to eat more of it to learn to like it more. That's a great rule. Um, so what's next for your research? What uh, Do you see these methods ever being incorporated into the mainstream approach for dealing with these kind of problems? I know that probably is one of your goals is to see that happen, but do you think that that's something we could anticipate in the future? Well, um, I want to tell you a little bit about the National MS Society and how they have evolved. So in 2008, when I first started talking about uh, the critical role of diet and MS, uh, several MS uh, groups wanted me to speak. Um, but I, I got interviewed by the Medical Advisory Committee and was placed on the disapproved list because I was creating false hope. Um, I keep writing grants. I submit them to the MS Society, and they would write back with, you know, ripping my proposal to shreds. Then this year, the uh, MS Society contacted me to join them in a wellness meeting in early November. Uh, and I was quite surprised. I called and said, are you sure you want me? you know who I am? And they, they said, no, yes, we know who you are. No, we definitely want you. 
So I go to this meeting, and they had 45 scientists who study diet and lifestyle and MS, 45 people with MS at this meeting, and we're talking about uh, uh, what's currently known and programming needs and research needs. When they had the introduction to the meeting, they had somebody from their media team who said, we monitor the cyber chatter uh, to see what our constituents are talking about with MS. And what they saw was... This year, in 2014, there was an explosion of conversation about diet and lifestyle. And there was eight times the conversation about diet and lifestyle than there was about drug, all of the drug therapies combined. And so then the next slide was, and in the diet and lifestyle conversation, it's about four to six times diet to lifestyle. Like, okay, that was interesting. Then in the next slide, the diet was, they had uh, four diets that were being talked about. Uh, Swank and McDougal, there's just a little bit of conversation about that. And about eight times, there was a conversation about the Walls Paleo Diet. And then the very next slide was the number one topic in 2014 was the Walls Protocol and Dr. Terry Walls. Um, so as a result of the public interest, they ended up uh, reevaluating their research priorities and made research on diet uh, much more uh, important to them. And they've then they've also and this time when they got my proposal, they didn't fund me, but they did give me some very uh, specific suggestions on how to improve the grant for the uh, next uh, application process, which we'll do uh, in August. Uh, so now I'm I'm thinking the MS Society will like is looking to fund me. They're probably getting pressure from their donors, certainly pressure from their constituents. And now they have finally said, you know what, we really do have to study uh, a dietary approach to uh, MS. Uh, and I find that very encouraging that now because of social media, the public is able to weigh in on what we think uh, uh, the research priorities should be. It's a very exciting time. That's very encouraging, and hopefully we'll see that across the board as the public interest and information grows thanks to the Internet and to people like you who are spreading the word. Hopefully we'll see that in other areas of health as well. You know, I, I absolutely, I, I am completely convinced of that uh, because now that the public can read uh, PubMed.gov, they can watch uh, for the research on whatever ailments they have uh, and know as much about the latest research as their doc. And people can publish their personal experience. And so it's far easier to spread the positive impacts of diet and lifestyle change through that social media. So the public, in one sense, is always going to be able to be at the cutting edge now, if that's where they want to be, on what kind of dietary and lifestyle interventions uh, could be helpful. And it truly is a win-win, as we'll see, hopefully, people getting better and continuing to improve and also doctors being more effective because they're addressing all of these aspects instead of just looking at the symptoms. Well, I think more and more uh, patients are coming into the doc saying, okay, I don't want drugs. What are my diet and lifestyle choices? Um, and so the public will be driving this change. And in fact, if physicians don't adapt quickly enough, they'll be replaced by another healthcare practitioner who will address diet and lifestyle, be that the naturopathic doctors, the chiropractic doctors, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, uh, the public will drive this evolution, and it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I'm excited for those changes. And for anyone listening maybe who 
is sympathizing or under, like seeing themselves in some of the things we've talked about or realizing that this might help them, what would be the three just baby step starting points that you would recommend for someone who's trying to make this transition from scratch? I would uh, go gluten-free, um, and if you can, I would go dairy-free as well. Um, if you com go completely grain-free, uh, that would be great. If that feels too hard, uh, have some gluten-free products, but limit it to no more than one or two a day, and then ramp up your vegetables. Awesome. And Dr. Terry, where can people find you and find out more about you? Um, so you can go to my website, uh, www.terrywalls.com. Follow me on Twitter, Terry Walls, on Facebook, Terry Walls MD. Uh, and if you're looking uh, for the details on the protocol, what we're studying, what we're doing, using in my clinics, I describe them in great detail in my book, The Walls Protocol. The paperback version uh, is essentially the same as the hardback, but we, we retitle it to make it more clear that this will help all autoimmune conditions. Uh, so the paperback is available. Many people are looking for a bit more support yet. If you go to my the shop page on terrywalls.com, we have some programs uh, with a membership site and a 30-day quick start for those who are looking for uh, more support. Perfect. And I'll make sure to link to all of those to your book and your website and also to your programs so that people can find those easily in the show notes. Um, Dr. Terry, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your fascinating research and, and all of your, your journey with us. That is marvelous. I, I just am so grateful for the opportunity uh, to speak and share my message of hope. Wonderful. We'll have to eventually have you back on again to share more as the research grows. And um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wellness Mama podcast, where I provide simple answers for healthier families. If you would like to get my seven simple steps for healthier families guide for free, head on over to wellnessmama.com and enter your email and I'll send it over to you right away. You can also stay in touch on social media, facebook.com forward slash endless wellness, or on Twitter and Instagram at wellnessmama. And I would also really appreciate it if you would take a second and subscribe to this podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you've ever benefited from something I've talked about on this podcast, I would be really appreciative if you would leave a rating or review since that's how others are able to find this podcast and so we can help spread the message. Thanks as always for listening and for reading and for being on board with creating a future for our children that's healthier and happier. And until next time, have a healthy week.